And I'd also encourage you to turn to, with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Our high school students have been really gearing up for this sermon. They've been looking this way. This is now 10, uh, week 10 in our sermon series, Holy and Faithful Mercies, the life of David, the life of King David. King David, who's done some pretty incredibly awesome things. Uh, and today, um, today we're going to talk about some sin. I mean, there's really no way around it. Today's text, today's sermon, today's contemplation, today's reflection, today's meditation, today's prayer is on sin. The sermon's about sin. David's sin. Our sin. See, the thing that puts separation between us and this holy, holy, holy Sin is defined as missing the mark. And the mark, you see, is, is obedience. It's obedience to the God who has given us life. He's designed us and he knows every inch of our body. Psalm 139 says, For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them had yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. This psalm, which tradition puts in the mouth of David himself, tells us that God formed our most inward parts. He knit us together. And even before this his eyes beheld our unformed substance. He knows us. He offers us an abundant life filled with the possibility of love and joy, even in the midst of inevitable trials and tears. And what he asks for, after he's given us all of this abundant life, is not simply obedience because he's the kind of God who likes things his way or the highway. No, it is so much better than that. God demands obedience because he desires nothing less than holiness for you and I. God is so opposed, opposed to sin because holiness demands it. Holiness is the stakes of the game. This is why sin is more than moral evil or, or breaking a rule or an unethical choice. Sin is rebellion against the God who gave you and I life. It's been said that sin is less an act of, that is criminal and more like the act of a traitor. We're going to see this in a remarkable detail through the story of David and Bathsheba. Again, this is a story of sin. And we might desire first, we might say, well, now this is a story about lust and and lust is certainly a part of the story and one that perhaps gets the thing started. But lust, or at least the adoration of another person's body, like so many sins, is a good thing done at the wrong time. 
for absolutely the wrong reason. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. See, we also might desire to make this a story about murder, the willful and selfish destruction of a human life, but David's sin and murder did not take place in a vacuum. It was the last-ditch effort of a man desperate to find a way to clean his own hands. Or perhaps we might want to make this story about exploitation of unmitigated power. The story of power that allows a person to exploit the authority that has been given to them for good reason, but rather than use that power for the purpose for which it was intended, it is instead used to manipulate others for one's own selfish desires. This is a 3,000-year-old story of sex, murder, and power merely showcasing the symptoms of the greater disease of human depravity. Sin that must be dealt with if our God is to do what he must and demand holiness for his creation. So before we get into the story, I thought I'd like to just spend a moment in prayer. And we can close our eyes. We can perhaps put our palms up. Maybe if you felt comfortable, if you felt that you were interested in doing this, there are prayer railings in front of your pews. And confession is absolutely the time to get on your knees before the God, before God. So I just thought we could spend some, a moment in prayer before we get into this text. Father, we kneel before you. We put this separation, this this missing the mark, this sin in your hands. Because, Father, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I cannot do this on my own. The thing that I want to do, the thing that I, I want to do to serve you, for some reason I just can't seem to do it. And all these other things that I really honestly don't want to do, like Paul said, for some reason I just fall into that. And I repeatedly fall for the, the mistake of attempting to make me God and ask you to sit and be in your box. God, reveal that in me this morning. Show me the sins that are a part of my life and I just ask that you would show that to me clearly, crystal clearly, so that anything about me that is separate from your holiness, please, Father, I put all of that at the foot of your cross. I nail it to your cross. And I trust in the power of your blood. Father, I just ask that my friends would be... Um, with ears open, with souls and hearts open as we go through this time considering um, this story of David and Bathsheba, this story of sin and redemption. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, our one true King, I pray. Amen. So war had flamed back up for the people of Israel. And it was typical in those days that during the winter months, hostilities ceased and were to be resumed when the warm spring weather came back to the land. But we're told that 
David remained in Jerusalem. While others were risking their lives on the field of battle, David stayed back and killed time. Do you remember last week when we spoke of David being settled on the throne? Last week we got, uh, he got this nifty idea that he would build the Ark of the Covenant a house. And God set him straight with, with just kind of a slight reset. In fact, the passage kind of ended with this amazing covenant promise back in chapter 7. This promise between God and David regarding David's house being, in fact, a great lineage of kings that will somehow build this forever kingdom. One that we now know, of course, stretches to the life of Jesus Christ himself. That's how we, we want our correction from God, right? Oh, David, uh, you know, you just got slightly off track there. Uh, allow me to just put you right back on path. Oh, and hey, look at this. Um, getting pointed in the right direction will actually turn out far better than you could ever imagine. Stick with me, kid. See, this kind of TV father correction of chap in chapter 7 turns much more severe in chapter 11 when David again finds himself lazy on the couch with nothing to do. Picking up in verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking around uh, about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now right away, we need to know something right off the bat that is worth emphasizing. The appreciation of the female form in and of itself, is not the sinful act here. There is a whole book of the Old Testament that is dedicated to sexual erotic love that can exist between a man and a woman. The appreciation and adoration of the female or male form is one of the most precious gifts God has given humanity. There are some who have insisted that procreation is the exclusive reason for human sexuality. And therefore, this adoration should be completely rejected, even in the context of marriage. Let us say here and now that nothing could be further from the truth. Husbands, God desires you to desire your wife. Wives, God desires you to desire your husband. If David had innocently and accidentally stumbled upon a woman bathing nearby and then averted his eyes and walked away, the rest of the story wouldn't have happened. But the text doesn't say that David thought this woman was beautiful. It says she was very beautiful. The problem wasn't that Bathsheba was beautiful. The problem was that she belonged to someone else. Verse 3, David sent someone to inquire about the woman. And it was reported, well, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> okay. Well, she was someone's daughter, and more importantly, she was someone's wife. And not just anyone. These people were given names. Eliam was her father. Uriah was her husband. And her name was Bathsheba. They were people with stories, not objects for exploitation. As, a, as king of God's chosen people, David had the responsibility to use his authority and power in a way that was consistent with the call of Israel to be blessed, to be a blessing. 
Instead, David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. David's actions used Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, for that matter, as mere objects for his physical pleasure. The exchange is brief. He sent for her, he laid with her, he sent her home. And this story becomes the textbook case for objectification and exploitation of another human being for sexual pleasure. While David's actions are repulsive, we must be so careful not to see ourselves in the exchange. Jesus says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Though, as I said earlier, lust is only the beginning of his tale. The text makes special mention of her having just finished her period. Evidently, she wasn't pregnant when she was brought to David's bed. But with David, she conceived. And she sent word to the king that she was pregnant with the king's child. Turns out that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was a soldier in the army, fighting in the war that should have been occupying David's attention. The king realizes that he needs to find a way for Uriah to sleep with his wife quickly so that it would appear that the child was conceived by the woman's husband. David sends word to General Joab that Uriah should return to Jerusalem and see the king. Joab obeys and Uriah is sent to to see David. And at first, the king attempts to make it seem like, well, the reason he sent for Uriah was just, just to inquire about how the war is going. And we might imagine you know, Uriah saying, oh, oh, sir, oh, it's exhausting. But we trust that we are fighting for our God and, and for our king. We're actually not told anything of the details of the conversation, only that it was suggested that Uriah go home to his wife before leaving for the battle the next day. Uriah is dismissed, and David might have well been under the delusion that all was well. The next day, though, David finds out that Uriah never went home. In fact, he he camped out with the servants at the palace gate. And David says to Uriah, you've you've just come from a journey. Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah says to David, the ark and Israel... And Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. And David was like, oh. David decides to try again. He tells Uriah that stay in town another night. Just another night, Uriah. And this time... He's going to up the game, and the king decides to get Uriah good and drunk because alcohol will definitely make this whole situation better in hopes this is kind of going to grease the wheels a little bit. And Uriah must have been feeling great being asked to eat and drink at the king's table. Like, man, I was just the messenger. You know, David sends Uriah home to his wife in a drunken stupor, but did Uriah go home to Bathsheba? No. He camped out again at the palace gates with the servants, That Uriah, what a guy. David, in what was probably a disoriented mixture of anger and fear, 
sends for Uriah once again before he heads back to the battlefield. Uriah comes to see the king, probably feeling pretty good. After all, this was King David, the man after God's own heart, who, who is now his close enough friend to eat and drink at his table. And even better, now the king places a letter. He places a letter in Uriah's hand. Perhaps Uriah thought that this letter, this must be extraordinarily important. Resolved, thinks Uriah. This is a message from the king of Israel for his general. I will not fail to place it in the general's hands. And Uriah must have ridden swiftly, filled with honor and duty as a courier for the king. And he arrives at the battlefield and finds General Job and hands him this letter triumphantly. Job thanks him, and Uriah turns and leaves the general's tent, and Joab reads the letter from King David. Send Uriah to the front lines of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him so that he might be struck down and die. General Joab is duty-bound. And does exactly as the king commands. Joab knows war, and evidently Uriah, perhaps still convinced that what Joab and David need are men who don't question authority. Uriah goes to the front lines because that is what he was instructed to do. And he dies. Joab sends word back to the king, word of the army's loss, which happens to include word about Uriah's death, but the army still lost. Lives were still lost. Israel had still lost. The general prepares the message and makes sure he knows to include the news of Uriah's death in the recounting of the battle. And the messenger travels to Jerusalem, comes into the presence of the king, and says, the men gained an advantage over us. They came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead. And David says, well, that was your problem right there. You never should have allowed yourself to get that close to the gate. You left yourself open, completely open to vulnerability of attack. You know, Job, how could he be so stupid? And the messenger stands there as his Monday morning quarterback king shouts at him, about the ways he would have done things differently if he was there. The messenger might have thought, yes, I I couldn't help but notice, your majesty, that you weren't there. But when David is finished berating him, the the messenger adds, Sir, I was also asked to inform you that Uriah Uriah the Hittite was included among the dead. David's demeanor changes. You know what? You win some, you lose some. Um, encourage Joab to, to rally the troops and, and try, try again to take the city. Uh, don't, don't lose a lot of sleep over this. Again, David might have been under the delusion that his problem was finally solved. And he may have left for joy, but with Bathsheba found out that her husband laid slain on the battlefield, she, of course, lamented. She, who knows whether she would have been honest with Uriah over the, fair, over the affair if she had had a chance. Who knows how Uriah would have reacted to such a scandal. Bathsheba is forced to mourn the loss of her husband while she is pregnant with the king's child. 
After the time of mourning is over with, David brings Bathsheba into his harem of wives. In time, she bears him a son. And perhaps for a brief time, David thought he got away with it. This whole nasty business could finally be put behind him. But in the last line of chapter 11, read that line, the last line of chapter 11, we're told that David's actions will displease the Lord. Oh, finally God comes back into the picture. Finally we get, we get uh, now, we, now God comes into this picture in the last line of the chapter. Somehow David's relationship with God, the relationship which had been such a key feature in his dealings with Goliath and Saul, and I shall not kill the Lord's anointed, and now it was nowhere to be seen. God sends the prophet pastor Nathan to speak to David. And like Jesus, Nathan is a master storyteller. He comes to the king kind of gently with this story. Take a look at the front of your bulletin, by the way. There were two men in a certain city. One rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing. Nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought, of course, with his own money. And he brought it up, and he grew, it grew up with his, him and, and his children and his home. They used to, to eat his meager fare, and, and, the, and the lamb used to drink from his cup. The lamb used to kind of lie in his bosom. It, it was like a daughter to him. And maybe David was thinking in that moment how grateful he was for Nathan's stories. Aren't pets great? Nathan, thank you for reminding me that the simple things in life are God's most precious blessings. And Nathan says, I wasn't finished. One day there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd and prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Well, of course, David is furious. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he showed no pity. What's this world coming to, Nathan? We need to get this country back to family values. This man clearly has no heart for what's important. This man deserves to die. But before he dies, he needs to pay back what he stole, like fourfold. We can't show any pity to a pitiless man. What do you say, Nathan? And Nathan looks at him and says, You are the man! And by the way, here's what the God of Israel has to say about it. I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had not been too little, I would have added so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your own? And to make matters worse, you killed him with the sword of our enemy, the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. 
And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the very sun. (laughs) For David, you did it in secret. I'm going to do this thing before all of Israel in broad daylight. At that moment, like water breaking through a dam, the reality of the situation comes rushing into David's soul. It all just appeared before him. How could I have been so stupid? And all he can muster, the courage to say is, I have sinned against the Lord. Actually, his response could have been a lot worse. He could have started making excuses. He could have started blaming Bathsheba. He could have started blaming Uriah. He could have started blaming Joab. He could have lamented how much stress that he's been under. But to David's credit, he didn't blame anybody but himself. I have sinned against the Lord. If any of us are wondering what a confession prayer looks like, this is a great place to start. A naming of that sin would be the next step, but the primary act of confession is between you and God. It is in that confession, that conversation, that redemption begins, and we listen for Him to convict us regarding the restitution that needs to be made with others. Clearly, David had business with Bathsheba. He had business with his general, Joab. And he had business with Uriah, although Uriah was dead. And admission and confession of sin to God is the place to begin as we seek to figure out the best steps after our own sinful deeds. I have sinned against the Lord. It's a good place to start. And after that confession, Nathan gets to be the one who then who then communicates with the king that God had forgiven David's sin. Still, even after our confession, indeed after our forgiveness, we need to know that sin has consequences. In the next breath, after David is told that his sin is put away by God, David must then inform David, or Nathan must then inform David that the child conceived with Bathsheba, would die. And after the child was born, it became very ill. David pleads, pleads for the life of this child. He fasts and he lays prostrate on the ground day and night. The elders of David's house beg him to just get up, eat, sire. But he refuses. And finally, on the seventh day of the child's life, David sees the elders discussing something from across the room. He knows something, something's happened. And maybe what was the loudest words that he'd spoken in days. Is the child dead? Yeah. Yes, yes, he's dead. And then David does a peculiar thing. He gets up. He takes a bath. He anoints himself. 
puts on clean clothes. And he goes to that tent where he should have been before, where the Ark of the Covenant had been kept. And, and, and what does he do? Faced with his sin, faced with the consequences of his sin, faced with everything that had happened within the past weeks, he worshiped God. Might strike us as odd. Maybe not. But tradition tells us, as Steve read, that he prayed this prayer. We'll listen to it again. He got down on his knees. He, he, he saw his sin, or at least what he could see of it. Because there's so much, there's so much about our sin that we don't see. But he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop that I might be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me, Creator God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new, put a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were brought, if I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and burnt uh, and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered at your altar. See, after he does business with God, he is able to be the person that he needs to then be to Bathsheba, who now comes back into the story again. The text tells us that he consoled her. And it may not be reading too much into the story to say that things were said that needed to be said. Confession to her the things that needed to be confessed and tears that needed to be cried. And after those tears and after maybe a, a, a remarkable turn of forgiveness, 
the two are able to fall in love, or at least they're able to make love, this time now, as husband and wife. And they conceive another child. And Bathsheba gives birth to another son. And this son's name is Solomon. We're told that God loved Solomon. We're told that he was beloved of God. And from here, David receives word from General Joab that the war had turned in their favor, and David gathers troops and is victorious yet again in battle, and thus ends this particular episode in the life of King David, the man after God's own heart. But let this story sit with us a while. Read it several times over over the next few days as you have your your devotional chair time. Where are you this morning? Have you been caught up in the habit of objectifying others for your own pleasure? Has sin manifested itself in your life through your actions of lust and lies and envy? Have you taken anything that you had no business taking? Leaders, business leaders, church leaders, family leaders, have you neglected your own responsibilities in a way that brought harm to those for whom you are responsible? Have you exploited power? Have you manipulated authority? in order that you might have an easier time dealing with your own mistakes? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, may you begin with a simple prayer. I have sinned against the Lord. Perhaps you could move from there to a personal prayer, one that says, Lord, I've sinned against you. And then see... See if he whispers in your ear the name of someone that you need to ask forgiveness. The habit that maybe you need to say no more. This ends today. But the final word on sin is that sin doesn't have the final word. It affects and infects even the best of our humanity, even even a man after God's own heart. Remember that one of the most interesting things that we can take away from this story is the truth that we have no greater king than God himself. You understand that the tragedy was not that David was some disgusting, smarmy individual to consume with his own self-pleasure or his people or, or than, than to be consumed with God. The true tragedy was that David was a man after God's own heart. A man who evidently was typically filled with a good bit of integrity. And this episode is clearly an example of of, of sin in David's life, but let us not make the incredibly foolish mistake of assuming that sin is not a part of each and every one of our lives. We need to not only expect it or accept it, we need to expect it. It is the rebellion that stands between you and your holy, holy, holy God. And that sin, it, it, it needs to be dealt with. 
That's the reality that we face when we think about a text such as this, is that when we see our own sin, when we see our own um, harmful habits, our own addictions, our own lust, our own uh, unhelpful anger, and heaven help us if it ever goes darker than that towards the areas such as uh, murder or harm to other human beings, regardless of whatever sin is in your life that is in my life, we gather today as the church to remind each other that sin is not the final word. Victory has already been won. Jesus Christ died on the cross for each and every one of our sins, and he begs us to come to us. Jesus looks at us, and he sees everything about us. He sees all of our sins. He sees all the sins that you might even not know about. He sees the consequences of your sins that you were saved from. And he sees that, and he sees the ocean of humanity's sin, and then what does he do? He goes to the cross and offers himself as a sacrifice. That's the gospel. It's not about what we do. It's about laying all of that down and trusting in his victory on the cross and trusting in his new life of his resurrection. As the worship team comes back up, let's just spend a little bit more time praying. Father, Create in us clean hearts. Show us your radical love this morning. Show us your revolution. Show us your redemption. Take these awful, hideous, repulsive things about how we've done damage to your creation. We've done damage to the people that you love. We've done damage to ourselves. Show us that. Highlight that. Show us that there is a true and actual rebellion that is in our, in our hearts against this true and holy God. And then remind us. Fill us with your joy and your pleasure and your happiness. Show us that your holiness is offered to us if we would only trust in Jesus. If we would only trust that, that through Jesus Christ we have holiness, bold we approach the eternal throne. Father, make that our reality this morning. Make that the, the, the other side of the coin that after we do that business, after we, we wrestle, after we name our sin and confess our sin, the next words out of our mouth is that we confess that Jesus is Lord. We can do that and we're proclaiming the gospel. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray.